Before turning to our text this evening in 1 John 5, we read John chapter 15. So we turn to John's gospel account, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my word abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you that she should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. We turn now to 1 John 5. And the text that we consider this evening is verses 6 through 8. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in giving ourselves to the study of this epistle, For several weeks now, we've seen more and more clearly the wonderful truth and significance of living in God's fellowship. And we have found that that covenant fellowship with God is the joy of true Christianity. The essence of the Christian life is found exactly in this profound and glorious relationship which we enjoy with God himself. So powerful is that covenant relationship established by by our being born of God and called to faith in Christ Jesus that it is the victory that overcomes the world and therefore overcomes all that which would rob us of our joy in Christ. And as we saw last week, that victory is ours by faith. More pointedly, that victory is ours by that faith which lays hold of Jesus, the Son of God. So, once again, we are led to Christ as the one in whom alone we receive the fullness of joy in the fellowship of God. But having once again been led to Christ, John would have us understand clearly who he is. Once again, we see, as we have a number of times in our study of this epistle, John lays out the practical instruction and implications of Christianity only to return to the foundational issues underlying them all. He has pointed out the truth that the Christian life 
comes to expression in loving God, in keeping his commandments and loving his children, but essential to those things is a correct doctrine, a right understanding of Jesus Christ. In the verses that we consider today, all the way through verse 12, a section that we shall not consider separately, John is going to establish once again the foundation of living in God's fellowship. He's going to point to Jesus and establish the doctrine of his person and therefore his deity. Because if overcoming the world is dependent upon our relationship to him, we had better be sure of his identity. It's our relationship to Jesus Christ that distinguishes us and establishes our relationship with God himself. In the confidence of our covenant fellowship with the Holy One, we rest entirely upon Jesus Christ, our Savior. But that means that this Jesus is God's Son, His only begotten, who is Himself God. And the witness of His truth is sure. So I call your attention to this testimony of Christ, doing so under the theme, Three That Bear Witness. We notice, first of all, who they are. Secondly, how they witness. And finally, to what end they witness. Two of the three verses that we consider this evening each speak of three that bear witness. Verse 7 speaks of three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's generally agreed that These verses are the most difficult to expound in all of 1 John. Some, in fact, would point to this text as comprising the most difficult verses in the Bible. Part of that is the difficulty of of treating the doctrine of the Trinity together with these concepts of water and blood that we read about here But part of the difficulty is found in dealing with textual criticism. And the controversy that rises concerning this text is one that has to do with the manuscripts from which our English translation was made. You see, we do not possess the original manuscripts written by John and all the other writers of Scripture, we don't possess those original manuscripts that God used in compiling Holy Scripture. From those original manuscripts, many other copies were made, both in the Greek language, but also in other languages that developed in the few years after the Bible was was compiled in the Greek language. I'm talking now about the New Testament scriptures. So those languages would include Latin and Coptic and Syrian and so on. 
But when it comes to this text, and particularly now, verse 7, there have been those going all the way back to the time of the Reformation and before who have asserted that verse 7 does not belong in the Bible. So if you look at some of the modern translations of the Bible, including the NIV, for example, which is a very popular translation, you find verse 7 missing. It's not included in those Bibles. And so in many churches today, people have grown up without verse 7 in their Bible. And that certainly causes confusion in the exposition of this text. And because of that omission in certain Bible translations, I want to say a few things about this matter before expounding this text positively. For one thing, let it be understood, while this text does not stand alone, and in fact is not even necessary to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, which doctrine is proved throughout the Bible. Nevertheless, this text is doctrinally sound and stands in perfect agreement with the whole Bible. Of that, there can be no dispute. In the second place, there's abundant evidence that 1 John 5, verse 7 is indeed a text of the inspired scriptures. I don't hesitate to include it in our text this evening and nor to read it in the authorized version, the King James Version. The one whose name is born in the Athanasian Creed, Athanasius, quoted this text in the middle of the 4th century in his defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. Before him, it is found referred to by several other church fathers, including Tertullian, about 200 A.D., and Clemens, about 190 A.D., only a hundred years or so after John wrote this epistle. This text cannot possibly be said to be a modern invention. But what is most telling is that the and of verse 8 demands the connection to verse 7. And the witness of God spoken of in verse 9 is a plain reference to the divine witness referred to in verse 7. So turning to the text, we are told that there are three in heaven that bear witness to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in whom alone we have fellowship with God. The three are the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now it isn't my purpose with verse 7 tonight to expound the doctrine of the Trinity. 
That we have occasion to do every time we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, and God willing, we'll have that occasion in just several weeks as we treat Lord's Day 8. Nor is it the purpose of verse 7 in this context to present a proof that God is three persons in one divine being. It stands as a sure demonstration of that truth. But as I indicated earlier, that doctrine runs throughout the Bible. What stands on the foreground here is that the three persons of the Holy Trinity, each and all together, give witness to the wonder of our salvation coming by Jesus Christ. They witness to us. And that such is the significance here is evident from verse 9 where we are told if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. This is the witness which we receive of God. The three persons who live in perfect fellowship in their own covenant life in heaven, bear witness to the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And they do so by embracing us and taking us into their own covenant life and family. The triune God reveals to us the wonder of our salvation. So that what is on the foreground in this text is that which is expressed elsewhere in Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. In taking us into his own fellowship, God extols himself in his three persons. He does so in our hearts. He magnifies in our hearts and minds the riches of his grace revealed in Christ Jesus. He bears witness to us that he has appointed for us all the blessings that we enjoy. And that he has done so by choosing us in Christ as his children. His eternal son is revealed as the word who reveals perfectly who God is and what he does. And who speaks that to us powerfully and irresistibly so as to draw us into that divine life of his fellowship. So the unity of the Godhead is expressed here with the expression, and these three are one. The covenant life of God, the perfect fellowship and unity of his love is that into which he takes us through his Son, And the triune God, as Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, 
bear record of that which God has done in his Son, namely, redeeming us through his blood and making known to us his gospel. But in verse 8, and that in harmony with verse 6, the emphasis falls upon the Spirit as the one that bears witness. Verse 6 said, And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. While verse 8 calls our attention again to three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three, we are told, agree in one. That is, they're united in their testimony. The Spirit, of course, is the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Don't let the lack of a capital letter in verse 8 throw you. The Spirit clearly refers to the Holy Spirit and therefore should be capitalized. Moreover, He is the Spirit of Christ poured out upon the church for the purpose of bearing this witness. And when I say that he is poured out upon the church, I mean specifically that he is sent by Christ into the hearts of his people. In the hearts of his own, he bears witness. And the testimony that he bears is found in Romans 8 verse 16, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You remember that as we began our study of this epistle, we saw John begin by speaking of the things which he and his fellow apostles had seen and heard. For the life was manifested, he wrote in chapter 1 verse 2. And we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. And he continued to call attention to the main theme of his epistle, namely the fellowship that is ours with the living God and therefore with one another. He wrote a similar truth in his gospel account. John 19, verse 35, after giving testimony of Jesus' death by the shedding of his blood, John said, and he that saw it bear record. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. He spoke as an eyewitness, that we might believe. But John realized that his own testimony had to be accompanied by something greater. So as he begins to wrap things up now in this fifth chapter of his first epistle, he points to the highest testimony, the witness of one not merely human, but divine. It is the Spirit who bears witness. And that record is true 
that the record is true is certain, therefore, because the Spirit himself is the truth, and he guides into all truth. The Spirit, therefore, testifies not merely to the outward and historical occurrence. He testifies also to the inward meaning and significance for you and for me. His witness is particular. It's not a witness to everyone. Because this spirit of truth is one whom the world cannot receive. Because it knoweth him, knoweth him not, neither seeth him, but ye know him, because he dwells with you and is in you. Indeed, since Pentecost, his work of grace is in each of us. As the apostle has pointed out in chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. Now the text, particularly verse 8, you will notice, does not simply speak of the spirit-bearing witness, but of three that bear witness in earth. Besides the witness in heaven of of the fellowship of the triune God and his own covenant life revealed through the word and by the Holy Spirit, the text adds... And there are three that bear witness in earth. The spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. The spirit is named first. Because these three witnesses are not equal. The spirit is the chief witness as indicated in verse 6. But we are taught in verse 8 that the Spirit witnesses through the water and the blood. What does that mean? I've mentioned that the Spirit's testimony is one of bearing witness that with our Spirit, that we are the children of God. That's Romans 8 verse 16 as well as Galatians 4 verse 6. But he bears that witness by pointing us to Christ. This is that which Jesus Christ himself had promised in John 15, verse 26, when he told his disciples, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of me. He repeated that promise in John 16, verses 12 through 15. I have yet many things to say unto you, but she cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Excuse me. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, Christ says, and shall show it unto you. 
All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. And that's where the reference to the water and the blood come in. Now there are differences of opinion on the meaning of the reference to the water and the blood. There are those who think that the reference is to the water and blood that flowed from the side of Jesus when they thrust the spear into his side at the cross. And that's an understandable interpretation simply because immediately before the words that I quoted earlier from from John 19, verse 35, we are told in verse 34, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And then follow these words. And he that saw it bear record. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. So given that connection between John's witness and what he now calls attention to as the higher witness, it's certainly possible to take that reference here as referring to the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side. But you will notice that there the expression is to blood and water, whereas here the words are reversed. Where the three that bear witness in the earth are the spirit and the water and the blood. Is that significant? while in itself a change in the word order may not be significant, what makes it significant is what we read in verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. So it's clear that From that verse, that the water and blood cannot refer refer to that which flowed from Jesus' side at the time of his crucifixion. That the text speaks of Jesus coming, marked by water and blood, can only refer to the beginning of his public ministry by the baptism of John, and the end of his public ministry by his death on the cross. By his baptism, Jesus was marked as the mediator of the New Testament. That baptism by John the Baptist was an important event. Because John the Baptist baptized unto the remission of sin. So we ask the question, how could Jesus be baptized? He had no sin. As the Holy One in human nature, he was perfect, undefiled, sinless. How then could he properly receive the baptism of John? 
And the answer is, he did so as the head of his church. The sins of all his people were upon him. He took them upon his shoulders. His baptism, from that point of view, was an act of his own will. You remember that Jesus was circumcised too. As being under the law, he was circumcised. But as being at, at the, as the end of the law, he was baptized. But that baptism was a baptism which was a sign of his own blood. Jesus, as it were, was baptized into his own death. So he came. So he entered his ministry and work. But that water was not sufficient. His coming through water was a sign of his coming into death. And so we read in verse 6, not by water only, but by water and blood. He came to shed his own blood for the blotting out of the sins of his people. That was necessary, otherwise his baptism would have had no significance. So there are three that bear witness in earth. The spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one, in Jesus Christ. Now, the emphasis in the text is not simply on the witnesses themselves, but on their witnessing. And therefore, we stand before the question, how are they witnessing? If you notice the language of verse 8 in particular, you see that there are three that bear witness. There are, notice that, there are three that bear witness. This witness is continuing. Something that is even more clearly expressed in the original. This is an ongoing witness, a powerful witness, a unified testimony of that which is true and significant. And as I pointed out before, it's primarily the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't appear visibly. You don't hear him audibly. As John writes in John chapter 3, where as the wind blows where it will, you hear the sound of it, can't tell where it came from and where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And yet it is to us that he witnesses. He bears that testimony to us personally as the living spirit to living men, women, and children. How then does he make his presence known? How does he make his testimony understood? Well, for one thing, the spirit bears witness as the spirit of Christ, the word of God. 
He bears witness as the one who was given to Christ in abundance at Christ's exaltation at his Father's right hand. In John 1 verse 33, we see this spirit descend upon Jesus at the time of his baptism by John the Baptist in the form of a dove. And we are told that the spirit remained on him. But the scriptures teach us that when Jesus was glorified, he poured, he bestowed his spirit upon the whole church. And he did so in fulfillment of John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. This Spirit comes, therefore, bearing the testimony of the exalted Lord Christ. He witnesses in our hearts bringing that which Christ speaks to us and he does so by his gospel as revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, Ephesians 3, verse 5. He bears that witness powerfully, irresistibly, drawing us to Christ our Savior, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1 verse 13. But that being said, we still face the question as to how the water and the blood are witnesses. Bear in mind now, as the text says, these three agree in one. That is, They all bear essentially the same testimony. And the Spirit is the one who bears that witness through the water and the blood. We know that the coming of the Messiah was a coming to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and its consequences. All were under the wrath of God. If we were to be delivered from the bondage of our sin and death, that wrath of God had to be taken and carried away. God's justice had to be satisfied. And John now tells us Jesus did that. He came as the mediator by water. Through that baptism by water, Jesus identified himself with our sin. He took our sin upon himself. And the significance of that was witnessed by that descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, immediately after which there was heard this great voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
So that in this water baptism, God testify to the fact that this is the Christ, the Messiah, sent by him to do the work appointed for him. And that work is our salvation. He came to accomplish the wonder of grace by which we are taken into God's covenant life, the life of the three that bear record in heaven. But to accomplish that work, Jesus had to do more than take our sins upon himself, identify himself with our sin. And so we are told clearly, not by water only, but by water and blood. Beyond identifying himself with your sins and mine, Jesus had to deal with them. He had to satisfy God's justice, paying the debt that we had incurred and bearing God's wrath that we deserve. And by paying that debt, Christ had to deliver us from the wrath of God and therefore from the power of sin and death. You boys and girls know how he did that, don't you? He poured out his life unto death on the cross. He didn't seek his own earthly kingdom and glory. He sought to do the will of his Father. He didn't seek to extol himself from an earthly point of view to establish an earthly kingdom with earthly riches, when people tried to make him their king, he would not. He wasn't sent to be their political and economic savior. He was sent to save his people from their sins. So the Spirit declares him to be the Son of God with power. And therefore, when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he said to them in Luke 24, verses 44 through 48, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And therefore we come to our final point and see to what end these three bear witness. 
It is for our sakes that this witness is made. The three that bear witness do so in order that we might see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in whom we have life everlasting. Do you believe that? The work of his suffering and death has been fully accomplished. Everything depends not on us, on him and his perfect work. He came by water and blood. He came to bring to realization the covenant of grace to redeem us and to reconcile us unto God. He came to give us the victory that we might overcome the world. And so we are given to see what it is to live in covenant fellowship with the eternally blessed God. When the Holy Spirit has so borne witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, we understand the glorious testimony of the blood of Christ that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. For while Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and the just retribution of God's wrath, the blood of Jesus speaks of our cleansing and of the riches of his grace in justifying us before God. In hearing this testimony, our guilt is overcome. Our conscience quieted by the peace that we never could have earned or accomplished by our own words or works. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in us is found the powerful testimony of the Spirit's work in washing us from the power of sin as water washes away the filth of the body. Though we still struggle with the old man of sin, we know the way of sanctification, and we live in it. We delight in God's love. We delight in keeping His commandments. And there is but one thing for us to do. We shall be witnesses, as Jesus said, that God may be glorified thereby. Amen. Father in heaven, we stand in awe before Thee when we meditate upon the riches of Thy grace and the testimony Thou hast borne that we might hear that word of Thy gospel 
and see in Jesus our faithful Savior. Father, grant that we may daily live by faith in him. Grant that we might also bear witness by our lives and by the testimony of our mouths that thou art our Savior. For Jesus' sake, amen.